It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure, it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that, like, people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the sixth episode of Watching Mates. I'm this week's host, Michael Levito, and I'm joined, as always, by Lars Emerson. What's up, everyone? I'm excited for this episode. If you're listening, hopefully you know who we are already, unless you're just a really big Gerald Ford stan. Um, This is our podcast in which we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president. As we progress from episode to episode, Truman to Eisenhower, Eisenhower to Kennedy, and so on and so forth, Lars and I each choose a film to capture the zeitgeist of that administration on the silver screen. In this episode, we'll be talking about America's 38th president, Gerald Rudolph Ford, who's also perhaps our most accidental president. <laughs> Beginning his career as a congressman from Michigan, Gerald Ford served as the House Minority Leader from 1965 until 1973, when he was appointed by Richard Nixon to serve as vice president following the resignation of Spiro Agnew. Of course, Nixon himself would resign only nine months later, which meant that Ford ascended to the presidency as the only man to do so without being elected as either vice president or president. Although he was fairly conservative ideologically, Ford had a fairly moderate record, expanding Nixon's policy of detente by signing the Helsinki Accords, more or less ending U.S. involvement in Vietnam, laying the groundwork for the pardoning of draft dodgers, and being an outspoken supporter of the ERA. But if Ford is most known for anything, it's probably his pardon of Nixon, which, while now considered a prudent boom by many, smacked of conspiracy to some, who theorized that Nixon had only resigned on the condition that Ford grant him the pardon. Why are you smiling, Mark? I, I just, I, I feel so bad for Ford. It's like the only thing he's really remembered for is, like, helping out someone else. <laughs> True. Um, well, he's also known for rising inflation in the worst economy since the Great Depression. Uh, the legacy of Watergate as well, which did a number on Ford's reputation, uh, he had to stave off a primary challenger in his own party, in his own primary from Ronald Reagan. And, of course, he would end up losing the 1976 election to Jimmy Carter. So uh, in, any other words on, on Ford's legacy, Lars, outside of what you just said? Gosh, I I really struggle with Ford. Um, <laughs> I, I like the – I recently did an article about, like, presidents in pop culture – um, and like I was using Ford kind of as, as like the anti example where it's like, I actually have no thoughts about like the actual Gerald Ford. The only thing I ever think about are like his Simpsons impressions was like, I like movies and like that weird cameo he makes on dynasty is <laughs> like, I have like almost nothing to say about his presidency other than like, Hey, was the pardon prudent? It's so hard to like, I, like, I don't know. Was he a good president? I guess not, but that's not really his fault. He didn't really have a chance. Yeah. My so my my favorite anecdote about Gerald Ford. This is taken. I I heard this on the presidential podcast. We actually interviewed his son, and he was talking about how apparently he was initially going to before he was uh, named vice president. He was actually planning on like retiring from Congress, and he had told Betty Ford this. Betty Ford, of course, being his wife. And he gets the call from Nixon asking him to be vice president. He accepts. 
and Betty Ford starts like crying because she's like, you told you said you're going to retire. We were going to move back to Michigan, blah, blah, blah. And he looks at her, he goes, Betty, the vice president doesn't do anything. <laughs> and then, of course, he ended up becoming the president and doing lots of things. Um, so it, it, it I don't know, just the, the accidency of, of, of his administration is just it is really it's just it is honestly fascinating to me. And like his anonymity, too, like he died in like 2005. And I feel like. That that's just so weird to me. I don't know the fact. Like I feel like Watergate. It feels so distant. The fact that he and my life overlapped is just kind of like hard for me to comprehend. Yes, that is that's definitely true. He's so um, he's so isolated in his time, even though he went on for like forty more years. Yeah, and it's like, and he, he, there's a section on his Wikipedia page that's titled, like, Public Image, and it's like, yeah, you're just kind of like a clumsy Midwestern guy, like, there wasn't a, a whole lot else to say about him. Um, anyway, I was wrong, by the way, he died in 2006, um, but still. It, it is funny that, like, he remarked on the vice presidency being, like, you know, basically nothing, um, in that, like, a bit, like, that was the prevailing attitude, Michael and I are both kind of, uh, academics on vice presidents if you haven't listened to uh, running mates but um that would literally change with the exact next vice president right uh, uh mm-hmm. excluding uh rockefeller um is mondale and carter were like the first like ones to institute the like vice presidents like actually have a policy role um so i, I kind of feel bad for ford now <laughs> yeah yeah another fun fact i don't know if we talked about this on running mates but i was because i was reading about rockefeller too his the other two people he considered outside of Rockefeller initially were George H. W. Bush and um, Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> oh, yeah, hey boy, can he pick him? <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, let's let, let's let's talk about the movies then. Um, we'll start with yours, Lars. Why, why don't you introduce it to us? Yeah, I'd I'd love to. So I went with 1975's Jaws, mm. uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, starring Rob Schneider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, and uh, those are like the big big three. Um, Jaws, if you don't know, is the story of uh, Amity Island, which is this town that is on an island. Uh, it's like a beach town, a summer town. Uh, and the new police chief, who is played by uh, Roy Schneider, <laughs> has to deal with the situation. That situation is that there's a giant great white shark that has started eating people on the island. Uh, and, you know, most of the plot is basically... I mean, there's basically three acts to this movie. Um, I'm just going to tell you up front, because this is a very famous movie. The first act is, like, no one really believes that there's a shark, and, like, everyone's just like, it's not a big deal. Let's just keep going. We're not going to close the beach. The second act is like, oh my god, there's a shark, and everyone's kind of freaking out. It's like we got to do something, and but there's still, you know, some drama there. And then the third act is okay, let's go get this this shark. And the the three of the main characters, uh, one is like a crazy boat pirate guy. Uh, one is like an oceanographer, ocean studier, and the third is Roy Schneider. They all go out to go kill this shark. There you go. That's the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I was, so this is my first time I'd watched, like, all the way through, um, and I was kind of, like, for some reason I had in my mind this was, like, a three-hour movie. It's not. It's, I don't even think it's, it's, like, it's a shade over two hours, um, yeah. but, um, what, what struck me, actually, was just how kind of, like, lean it is, in a way. 
I it feel is. like it's it's very focused. Um, and like I was surprised that it's like they they go out to sea and then they stay out at sea for like the rest of the movie, basically, right? Um, yeah. And it it's just very straightforward them trying to track down and kill the shark, and it just it just kind of focuses on that. And there's obviously like character development stuff along the way, but. The, the way I was surprised, again, like, just telling... And it's also, like, super technically impressive, right? Like, the effects look great. I mean, better than, like, some CGI from, like, 20 years ago looks. Um, yes. It's, it's, it's just a very impressive movie. It's still kind of weird to me it was not made for Best Picture. I mean, certainly worthy, but it's just, like... I don't know, like, what would the equivalent be? I guess, like, Mad Max being nominated for Best Picture is kind of the equivalent. Right. I mean, in the and in the, you know, kind of late 70s, early 80s we're in this period where like the big blockbuster hits are also like really, really good. And they keep like, Mm -hmm. obviously star Wars got nominated, but you also have like Raiders gets nominated. And that's kind of like a, a niche movie to get nominated for best picture. Right. ET got nominated. Right. Can I just say, I'm so glad that we're in like the Spielberg era. (laughs) It's like, he just makes so many, like, like you said, he makes them really tight, even though some of them do get to be like two and a half hours long. It's like, he just Mm -hmm. makes like, it never feels that long. Yeah. Uh, I, I So I haven't seen the first movie Spielberg ever made. It's a movie called Duel, and it was like a TV movie. And it's about this guy who is like, he's being like chased down on the highway by this like crazy like trucker. Tr- trucker, right? Yeah. And like, I, I, I can imagine that like that very much probably informed like the stuff of the shark, right? Yeah, like I this this sort of like man against nature, um, mono e mono thing. Um, anyway, um, so what 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 uh what why uh why why this in Ford? <laughs> yeah, so l- let's say up front that we're working with a pretty limited slate when we're talking Ford, right? We're basically. Yeah. 1974 to 1977 is Mike and my like acceptable range, but like you know realistically, films made in 1974, even though Michael did choose one, aren't mm-hmm. gonna really be about Ford or have anything to do with them, yeah. other than Watergate, which we'll get there. So it's quite literally about water and gates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so I went with Jaws just because it's kind of. Uh, you know, you're kind of square in the Ford era, 1975, and it deals with, um, I mean, honestly, the first two thirds of the movie are very much about a government that is trying to tamp down a crisis or like downplay a crisis, I should say. And not so much a clash in cultures as we saw in, you know, our last episode with Nixon, um, but more a clash in like trust and institutions. Um, you have, these varying interests you have the police chief his job is to keep everyone safe then you have the mayor who's like leaning on him all the time to you know keep the beach open it's like the summer months are when we make all of our money um it feels like a very realistic problem actually it's like it feels like we live something very through very similar the past year (laughs) (laughs) right right um but it also feels kind of like an allegory uh for climate change or something like that it's like you could make this exact same argument right it's like well we got to do something now and someone's like no no it's too expensive you know this is when we make all of our money it's like well if you don't do this now then whatever um and then you have like a scientist is like the other main character and i'm not sure if the like pirate boat guy has any like interests other than to be a pirate boat guy (laughs) Well, he's got a vendetta against sharks. Well, that's he true. Sharks that's a good they point. Eat, they, 
no, he's got like this very like deep down hatred of sharks because he was on the boat that delivered the nuclear bomb to, uh, I guess, the Enola Gay, and then they get destroyed by the USS Indianapolis, and they gets destroyed by a Japanese torpedo, and they're like stranded, and sharks eat a bunch of. He's got the very famous monologue about. Yeah, I I was reading about the actual event. It is to this day the largest recording like um, death by shark event. It's just like so many people died from sharks. I didn't even <laughs> realize that it actually happened. So yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and apparently it's now like re. It wasn't very famous, but this movie actually made it more memorable and more famous to people. So now people remember the attack by the sharks. <laughs> um. So anyway, you get you get all these divergent interests uh, and you get like a, a government that may not be like corrupt isn't the right word, but not looking out for your best interest certainly is the right way to put it. And it it, it, it reads the right the wrong way to an audience. Right. It's like the mayor <laughs> is really just trying to like cover his own ass mm-hmm. and make himself look good and you you have to square that with you know protecting the people and killing this giant shark <laughs> yeah yeah it, it is um yeah it's, it's about government it's government cover up like it's i think it's so interesting too that it's set in this um like there's there's a scene early on when because you know it, it takes place part of it takes place on like the fourth of july there's you know like their big summer weekend and there, there's a part roy scheider's like getting like you know he's kind of like alerting the town about what's happening and it, there's all these scenes of like small town americana right um, yes it's very sort of idyllic scenes and yet there's something very sinister lurking on but you have this politician who is like um trying very very hard to make sure that nothing sort of like um you know destroys the veneer of this sort of like idyllic american experience and i also think like you can't kind of overlook the fact that like the first person to get eaten by the shark is some, like, hippie chick, right? Like, it, yeah. it, the movie begins with all these, like, they're not, like, strictly hippies, but they're, like, these young people, like, smoking pot and playing guitar on a beach. This one chick goes skinny dipping, she gets eaten, and then nobody cares. Like, I think there's sort of, like, a... There, there's maybe, like, some commentary there about, you know, the, the generation gap, I guess. Uh, I also think, too, like, in, in the character of Roy Charter, he plays the police chief you know he's supposed to be a fish out of water <laughs> and um he you know he's originally from new york um he, he he hates the water he hates he hates the sea he hates boats and yet he lives on an island and the fact that he he's kind of like thrust into this unusual position and having to sort of like right the wrongs of the mayor and really take over like i feel like that's kind of like a Fordian figure right there right this guy who was not expecting to be put in this position, you know, went into a job expecting nothing to happen, basically, right? Like, from being in New York to, to working in a small town. And all of a sudden, he's, he's thrust into this very extraordinary situation. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ab- absolutely. I, another thing that I think is, in the Nixon episode, you know, we talked about how both the films we chose kind of showed how America was like coming apart and how like it was turning America against itself. They were like versus movies mm-hmm. where there was a clear, you know, both there were clearly two sides and they did not like each other and they were both American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in, in this movie, you know, the, the, if the first act is all about like government failure and a government cover up, the second half of this movie um, is basically about how different men, I mean, you have, you know, 
an academic, the, sci- the scientist, mm-hmm. uh, a police chief, and a blue-collar guy, for lack of a better descriptor, um, coming together to solve a problem. Yeah. And uh, there's something that feels very... I, I don't know. We're just kind of in that era where that didn't feel... It feels like you lose that for a while under under Nixon and kind of under Johnson, if we're being honest. But it feels like you kind of pick that back up in the 70s and 80s, and then I think you lose it again um, in film. Yeah, and that, like, division... Be- like, you, you have sort of... Um... Uh, Robert Shaw's character Quint is very resistant to having Richard Dreyfuss's character on the boat. Like he's, you know, he's like, he's like a college boy. Um, he feels his hands, and he's like, you spent, he's like, ah, I spent too much time counting money. This whole thing, which is like a very Nixonian idea, right? Sort of the Franklins versus the Orthogonians, the haves versus the have-nots, where like the have-nots are these sort of like resentful, um, self-made men against like you know the Eastern establishment, basically. But yeah, and this sort of like, it's like an oddly hopeful movie, <laughs> um, even though it's kind of like a horror movie um, about these people uniting to, to take on a big existential threat. Um, perhaps a misplaced optimism, but but optimism on the world. Then there's some really nice moments between the characters and like how they, it's like they find out what unites them is like, I mean, they all like to, they all like to drink on this boat and they yeah. all, I guess they all like women. Uh, that's enough. That's enough for these guys. They like showing off their scars, right? Yeah. Um, it is. It, there are like genuinely scary moments in this movie. The like scene where he dives down to the boat mm-hmm. scares the shit out of me every oh, time. Yeah. yeah. I, it's just, there's just so many. Oh god, it's just the like unseen fear is so well done in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so glad we're in Spielberg. It's so. Exciting. Like the scene where they're like on the dock. Uh, there's like two guys who this is kind of in the second act is they there's, they put up a bounty to catch the shark. Mm-hmm. And these like two fishermen go out to like wait for a shark to come. Um, I think it ends up not being the shark, but it's like the dock comes like crashing down. Uh, and then you see like maybe it is the shark. I don't think it's ever. Revealed. They, they, it's know, like, they don't say. Yeah, because it's weird because then like the next scene is them with a different shark. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's like, you know, the, the shark pulls this deck off of the beach and then like you see it just start turning around to come back for this guy who's like fallen in the water. Really good. Really well done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Speaking of the like shark that they like find. So, yeah, like halfway through the movie, they put up this bounty and these people find like a big shark, but it's not the shark. You know, the the scientist um, and kind of the police chief, they're like, well, we kind of need to, like, cut it open to see if this is the shark. Because if it's the shark, there's going to be, like, the boy's body inside, right? And the mayor's like, well, you can't do that here. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no, I actually totally agree with the mayor on this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like politicians, you know, say what you will, but they do have, like, a pretty good sense for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, like... This is unrelated, but in that, I think it's around that scene, there's, like, a guy, uh, and Richard Dreyfuss is, like, describing, like, the types of sharks, and he's like, I think it might be a tiger shark, and the guy's like, oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lots to love about this movie. Yeah, it's very good. Um, I, I have one more thing to say about it, and then we can move on to yours, and it's... Like so, this is kind of considered like a Watergate movie or like a post-Watergate movie for the reasons Mike and I have kind of described. 
And there was like an interview with Spielberg um, in which the interviewee was asking, it's like, was this movie, you know, is this movie about infidelity? Because it's like, you know, cheating on your wife gets you, you know, maybe killed by a shark or whatever. Uh, is it about like Watergate? Is it about like masculinity? Is it about these things people say? <laughs> Spielberg replied, no, it's a film about a shark. Which <laughs> is, yeah, yeah, true. I, um, this is, this is a complete aside, but it reminds me of, I had to read this article for school about this um, guy was trying to interview the guy who shot George Wallace, who um, was like, he was like out on, out on parole in Maryland. And so he's trying to find him and he's like, in a small town in Maryland where he lives, like asking people and he ends up finding his barber and he's asking him questions about him. He's like, so was he like any, was he like any other, uh, any other customer? And the guy's like, no, he shot a guy. He's not like any <laughs> other customer I have. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, it is in fact a movie about a shark. Okay though. But I, th- I think we're jazzed out. So uh, we can uh, move on instead to Chinatown. The movie I picked, directed by Roman Polanski, written by Robert Town, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Hellerman, Perry Lopez, and John Huston. Chinatown is a story about a private eye in 1930s Los Angeles who is initially hired by what he thinks is the wife of the head engineer of the city's water department, who believes he's having an affair. He gets some pictures, they're put in the paper. It seems like that's what he's done. But then another woman shows up as door saying, actually, I'm the wife of this guy and I did not hire you. So I don't know what's going on. This guy, the head engineer, ends up turn. He turns up dead, in fact, in a reservoir. And uh, J.J. Giddis, Jack Nicholson's character, spends the rest of the movie unraveling a conspiracy around irrigation and the water department and all of that. Lars, what did you think of this movie? This is the first time either of us had seen it, I believe. Yes, I have been wanting to see this movie for years, and I just kept putting it off. So I am so glad we watched this. Is so Roman Polanski, terrible, terrible, terrible guy. Very um, bad. But this movie is like maybe the best thing he's ever done. <laughs> uh, I actually almost definitely the best thing he's ever done. Let me clarify. So good. I mean, I was so like in intr- like. Uh, captivated by this movie that i forgot to take many notes uh so i'm gonna stumble through here but i I was just like so hooked i thought it was so interesting so yeah on the surface great movie did you agree i do i i really loved this um i thought it was amazing another movie i felt was like very like i compare this to la confidential which we watched Mm. for our oscars podcast la confidential Mm. is a fine movie but it did feel like there was some bloat Right. I don't know. It, it just felt a little overstuffed to me. This movie yeah. did not feel like that at all. Like, and even though the plots like it's not convoluted, but there's like twists and turns. I felt like I was pretty easy to like pretty easily follow them, but they were still very surprising. I think this is my favorite Jack Nicholson role that I've ever seen. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. He's he's very, very good in it. He's he's very interesting character. He's got some great lines, but he's not like crazy like he would become yeah. in kind of later movies. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I also really enjoyed it. Obviously, a, a very good screenplay. Um, as far as, as as the fourth thing goes, I mean, I feel like there's a pretty obvious kind of Watergate parallel here where it is about a government conspiracy. Right. Um, it's, it's a movie about, like, sleuths and PIs and, like, government yeah. conspiracy. And also, like, I feel like the thing people forget is that, like, Woodward and Bernstein were just, like, police reporters. And they were just, like, they were literally just reporting on, like, a burglary at a... Um, a hotel like 
And then they were like, wait a minute, why are all these guys wearing suits? This is weird. And then obviously it built from there. And so I feel like having sort of Giddis as as this figure who is just like, yeah, like, because you can see at the beginning, right, when when the, the phony wife comes in and is like, oh, I need you to investigate my husband. You know, he's very much going through the motions. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that he's cheating on you. I can't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And then he gets kind of more and more compelled and kind of does it like initially. I mean, he, he doesn't like in self-interest because he, 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 he's worried he'll be implicated for like hiding evidence. But um, for more or less, he just kind of wants to get to the bottom of what's going on and, uh, and, and does so. So it certainly has that element to it too. And I also think just like this idea of, yeah, just kind of like stashing dirty laundry, <laughs> like under just layers layers of government stuff is is, uh, yeah, just very much something that happens in this movie. Yes, even though it takes place in the 1930s. I, I don't I don't know if if J J Giddis is like quite a forward in the way we were talking about um, Roy Scheider is. Yeah. Uh, in that like. Giddis seems like less pure. Which yeah. I'm not sure I would call Gerald Ford pure, but it's kind of like you were saying, he's just like kind of a guy thrown into a situation mm-hmm. he didn't think he'd be in. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like Giddis kind of like lives in this situation and Ford for all like intents and purposes seems like a genuinely good guy that just like had a no win situation in which he got to become president. So boohoo, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think if there is a Ford character, it, it is it's Mulray, the guy who gets murdered, um, because because he's only on screen for like a minute. Yeah, right. Well, because you find out there's a conflict between him and John Houston's character, um, who's also his father-in-law, even though they're like the same age, who were they they both founded the water company. And Mulray thought it, the, the water should belong to the people. And this is the guy I want to keep it private. And you have this sort of like. You know, you got the like the Machiavellian John Houston versus the virtuous and just kind of a guy Ford, um, played yeah. by Mulray. Um, I think you, you get that a little bit. So there's that. Also, like the ending, and the, the ending to me, I think, is also kind of what one of the bleakest endings in movie history. I think. Um, yeah. Should, should should we just spoil it? Spoil this like 50 year old movie? <laughs> yes. The, okay. Yes. There's so a lot happened, that happens in like the last 10 minutes. Right. So basically what happens is, is Moray gets murdered. Giddis is hired by his actual wife to investigate the murder. Essentially what they find out is that there is this scheme where in which water is being diverted from the L.A. reservoir, basically, to the valley surrounding L.A. to make it prosperous farmland. And a bunch of people, including, what's John Hughes' name, Noah Cross, who is the father of Faye Dunaway's character, who's Moray's wife, have bought up this land using phony names, the names of people just kind of stashed away in a nursing home, and they're just going to make a killing off of the land, basically, um, because it's going to become prosperous farmland. Um, and they're also diverting water away from, like, actual farms in the process. It also turns out that the woman that Mulray had been seeing that Giddis had caught him with is Evelyn, his wife's daughter and sister, that... Um, uh, yeah. She had been raped by her father and had given birth to uh, a child, as if this couldn't get seedier. And then, so what happens at the end is basically Jake finds this out. There's this ultimatum where basically the police are like, you have to turn this woman over because she's now under suspect. She's now suspected of murdering her husband. You have to turn this woman over or we're going to arrest you too for like extortion. 
Um, he devised this thing where he's going to get her to escape, basically, while also simultaneously proving her innocence. Instead, what happens is he goes to meet up with her in Chinatown, sort of the rendezvous point, um, and he finds his associates handcuffed. The police are already there. Noah Cross is there, too. She, Evelyn shoots Noah Cross, but doesn't kill him. They speed away. She gets shot by the police. Noah Cross absconds with his daughter slash granddaughter and then the one guy says forget it jake it's chinatown and it's all just kind of like forgotten it's just kind of like yeah we're not going to do it like even the police are just who are out to get guys are just kind of like yeah this is not like forget it man like this has gotten too ugly too fast and we're not even going to bother dealing with it and i feel like that's kind of happened with watergate right it's like it, it was just a thing where it was like look man like a lot of bad stuff happened but we we, we can't deal with this we're just we're just gonna we're just gonna pardon nixon and we're just going to kind of get it over with and and that's sort of what happens in chinatown but through a much more sorted lens um, yeah I, I mean i mean the pardon obviously comes you know months after this film comes out because mm-hmm. uh, i think this is june of 1974 um but but yes i i kind of thought the same thing it's like you're just uh you're basically saying like we can't even afford to deal with this so we're just gonna not and we're just gonna end it right here (laughs) yeah um so maybe it's like a not prescriptive but uh it's previewing kind of the thought Uh, was the pardon a good idea ah things could have gotten pretty ugly yeah um i i have tend to think yes the more i've read about it I tend to think so, too. There's also a part of me that wonders if, like, do we need an example of a president getting punished <laughs> for doing something illegal, which has never happened? And maybe that's, you know, recent events making me think that way. Right. Um, that's a good point. But I, you know, also, I feel like we were, we we being the United States as a people were kind of just, like, very much living on, like, a tightrope for a lot of the 70s. And maybe this could have like also caused a civil war. I don't know, but yeah, I it, I I also tend to think it was probably a good idea. But I I am weirdly sort of like beginning to wonder if maybe it wasn't. But I, I I do think generally like I don't know. I think maybe the the good that came out of it may, would probably have been outweighed by the bad. And um, yeah, yeah. Well, so. If Chinatown, if we're comparing the end of Chinatown with the pardon, uh, you say, as you've said, it's like one of the most bleak endings you've ever seen, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, is is this the kind of thing where it's, where you just, you know, you let it go? Like, why why is Chinatown different? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, no, nobody died in Watergate. <laughs> um, and and no, nobody had a child out of incest. So there's that. Um, and I, I, I think that what, what, I, what I think it is, is that there's a sense and maybe, maybe this is maybe I'm mistaken when I say this. Right. But there's a sense that like, you know, a lot of what happened in Watergate was sort of like it, it was Nixon's operation. Right. And with Nixon out of the White House, that operation, to my knowledge, I'm not an expert on it. Like, you know, it's it's creep creep no longer existed. The committee to reelect the president. You know, you you kind of I mean, it didn't really work out this way, but like G. Gordon Liddy was 
ostensibly like deep Howard. He went on to have like a very like long career as a pundit. I don't know why he like is almost a literal Nazi, but he, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of these Watergate figures did kind of get away scot free. But um, you know, it it was bad, but it was ultimately a, a question of sort of like money and yes, some very like very bad things going on with intimidation and blackmail and things like that and and just straight up like forgery and fabrication in the case of Edmund Muskie and the Canuck letter so there's that but the thing with Chinatown is like there there's you wonder what else is going to happen right at the end right right <clears throat> like what, it's what's more s- systemic whereas with Watergate ostensibly once you have a transfer of power yeah the problem goes away it's like what's going to happen to Catherine right it's kind of interesting right it, it kind of what I think is so interesting about American politics, specifically like presidential politics, is that it is engineered in such a way that it it it, it gives us a sort of it, it can give us a tidier narrative, and in a way actually like it's easier to spin I think the ten years of presidents than it is to say like a prime minister of the United Kingdom, right? You look at like the like the prime ministers of the UK, right? The last few of them have essentially either lost re-election or, like, resigned in failure, <laughs> right? I mean, Blair was, like, an arranged thing. He was just giving up power for some time. Brown lost his election. Cameron resigned because of the Brexit vote. May resigned because she was just couldn't, you know, put together a coherent coalition. And now Johnson's in there doing whatever he's doing. But, like, but that, that, that you, you don't get that in American politics, right? You, you get two terms, and then you get to the... After your second term, it's like, yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't lose a re-election, right? I, I can't lose re-election. Only one president has ever resigned, right? That's kind of astounding, I think. And my guess yeah. is, if you looked, were to look at other country chief executives, would not be the case. You've had a few who've died in office, sure, but they become martyrs. And the ones who lose re-election, obviously, that that's that's kind of a black mark on their career. But I think they, a lot of them have tended to be like rehabilitated, right? I think Jimmy Carter is kind of viewed as a guy who, you know, as, as like a nice guy, whether or not you agree with politics or not, he's like a nice guy who was also kind of unlucky. Um, very, very, very unlucky. Right. right. It's like the most objective read you could have on cards. Like, even if you like kind of disagreed with his policies, like the dude just had like the worst possible timing to be president. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that people think that like Ford's loss is like Ford's fault. <laughs> you know, right. I think people thought that after Watergate, you know, it'd be very hard for a Republican to win. And I feel like George H.W. Bush, like his image was very much rehabilitated by the time he died, which he's yeah. the most recent president to pass away. And I think he was very much held up as like, as, especially because you could contrast his temperament with that of Trump's, where he was very much held up as, you know, a sort of as a statesman, as like an, a, a model statesman and, and just like a, a decent person. Well, and to extend this thought a little further, even Nixon's image was actually significantly improved mm-hmm. post-presidency. And, uh, I mean, if you want to go, like, really big scale with this, and to use the most recent example, our last one-term president, Trump, um, the only reason I don't think his image is improved, other than, like, a lot of really bad stuff that he did, in the, especially in the last few weeks of his presidency, um, is that he's actively stoked interest that he's still interested, Right. Yeah, like George W. Bush <laughs> Jr. even, but like George H. W. Bush Sr. It's like the fact that he was never going to run for president again did wonders for his image. Mm-hmm. It's like you just get it's like how everyone likes Hillary Clinton when she doesn't run for president. <laughs> it's like she pulls it like 67 percent approval. 
uh, or she used to. But it's just an interesting it's an interesting thing about American politics. We don't like people who run for office. <laughs> yeah. And like, but well, we do love ex-presidents, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I do you remember, and I remember this, I was like fairly young, I was in like eighth grade when this happened, so I think I just figured it was a thing that just like happened, but like, actually I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school, but I don't know if he'd actually been sworn in yet, but shortly after Obama's election, maybe shortly after he'd been president, like all of the living presidents gathered at the White House and just like had lunch. Yeah. Yeah, and like, people were like, this is like so cool, like even though it was, you know, Bush, who had just had a terrible presidency, it was the first Bush and Clinton who had like a very bitter election against each other, and then you know, Carter's whatever. Carter. But, um, but I don't know, just just like I like I like any like you see them sitting together at like well, not all of them, but you see most of them sitting together at each inauguration, and you're like, this is pretty like this is cool, like it's it's cool that we get to have this. And they all but, like I mean they've all done these like vaccination videos together now too. Yeah. But that does kind of launder their image, right? Yeah. Um, they they become kind of avuncular, and it gets harder to maybe kind of point out when they weren't doing too good. What what I and even when they're very blatant about it, like what's interesting is I just finished reading Nixon Land, and they talk about how he kind of like prolonged the Vietnam War, part partly as like a re-election ploy, right? He figured that like if people thought he would be better to able to handle the war than to govern, so he would win if the war was still going on. Um, and he said in, like, 1992, like, Bush's problem was that he didn't prolong the Persian Gulf War. And if he had, he probably would have won. Oh, and it's God. like, that's like a, a like a very Machiavellian thing to say. People are just like, ah, ah, dick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that that incorrigible old guy. Well, in, tr- in true Gerald Ford fashion, we've spent most of this episode <laughs> talking about Nixon and Watergate. So, <laughs> sorry, yes. Jerry. Yeah. A- anything else to add about Chinatown? Uh, no, just a very good, very good movie. Uh, yeah. e- even though you don't, even though no one likes Polanski, or at least I hope they don't. This is a, I, um, okay. Well, taking in Jaws and taking in Chinatown Lars, what, what conclusions can we draw from the Ford era by looking <laughs> at these movies? Yeah. So I, we've kind of talked about a lot of them already. It's like, we're still dealing with distrust in government. Um, uh, and, you know uh government cover-ups we're also i I think a thing that we see in these movies that we haven't really seen super much so far is um like the rise of interests in policy making and like you know you kind of get more attention paid to like the mayor of this town wants this and like he's leaning on the police chief but like this interest group doesn't want that it's like i'm not sure we've like I'm not sure we've really seen that in any other movie yet, but I think it's like very um, like you see it happen and it's commonplace in movies now. Like it makes total sense to us that different interests have different interests. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it, it stood out as like kind of a, a new thing in these movies. I, th- those are my brief takeaways, but Ford is also a brief president. So I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like we've kind of been building up with this idea of like, the veil slowly being lifted from sort of like popular perceptions of like the inherent righteousness or purity of like the American system and of American politicians, right? Like with the the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? Even even though Jimmy Sword doesn't actually shoot Liberty Valance, like he is still like he is like the most virtuous man in town. Therefore, he should be. I think he's elected senator or whatever, or like some some representative. 
Yeah. Um, Sarah, er, stars. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, so there's that. Uh, a thing I've kind of actually grown to like about this format for the podcast um, is we're kind of actively watching faith in our institutions and government decline over time. <laughs> it's true. And, but it's like, it's like fascinating. Like the movies that we watched that would have been from like, you know, a decade ago or two de- decades ago from this one. Uh, it's just very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah. how, how jaded American society has become. And we're kind of like coming out of a brief dip in that. And then it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah, I think in general, just like a larger cynicism, right? I think it's so interesting that in Chinatown, like there are two instances of like um, of like the image of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Like one is when there's like that hearing about like the new dam they want to build. And there's just I don't know why, because it's clearly like a Los Angeles like city council thing. But there's like a massive portrait of Roosevelt like behind the podium. And then there's also uh, Jake has a framed picture of Roosevelt on his desk. And so I think there's there's like a degree of sort of like an acknowledgement of like there's there's cynicism there. Right. Roosevelt considered by many to be a great president. But like. We don't know what each of these institutions are institutions. I don't know. Jake's not an institution, but you know what I mean? Each of these like entities are using um, this image for but it doesn't feel very straightforward. Like they're they're using the image for something. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not an outright celebration, but it's clearly there, there, there's some kind of manipulation there. I, I got to say, I feel like we picked like two of the like best movies we've picked so far for like the least meaningful president. <laughs> it's just I, I have so much to say about both of these movies, but I have so little to say about Gerald Ford. Yeah, well, that's like I guess it's a good thing we picked good movies then. Because right, right. How is that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's probably just an accident of history and of you know, the 70s being considered sort of like, you know, an important period of American cinema. I mean, hey, we're going to have, what, like a few months to pick the Biden movies, so... Yeah, um, it's going to be a breeze from here on out, though. I, I think we've definitely turned the page on, like, you know, finding movies in Truman's era it was pretty hard. It was, yeah. Yeah, I think I have... I have, for, like, 90% of the remaining presidents, I already know what movie I'm going to pick. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, all right. But well, our listeners can still send us suggestions. Yeah, please do. Um, please do. All right. Well, that's watching, mates. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we hope you learned a lot. We hope you you thought a lot. Um, I'm Mike Levito. You can find me at Twitter, at Levito. You can find my writing on the Post Rider, at Letterbox at Ameramike. I'm Lars Emerson. You can find me uh, on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. And you can find our podcast, Watching Mates, wherever you do listen to podcasts. So thanks for listening. And until then, stay away from sharks. Yeah, don't go in the water. Um, And we'll see you next time to talk about the films of the Carter era. Yes, we will. Thank you, Lars. All right. Bye. Bye.